0: Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca.
1: To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in unceded Stalo territory known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of green trees.
0: welcome to the grief dreams podcast thank you for tuning in and listening to another episode so i'll be your host today joshua and we have our guest who is named krishma aurora krishma immigrated to the united states from india when she was five years old and grew up on long island and then attended new york university she's a poet writer and public speaker for a few years, she was the author of Free Spirit, a monthly column in her hometown magazine, Brookville Living. She has an MS in education as well as an MS in marketing. She has also worked as a high school social studies teacher for 11 years. She lives in New York with her husband and four children. And Christmas' newest book, which I'm excited to talk about, is called From Ash to Ashes, which is being released... On May 23rd of this year, she began writing From Ash to Ashes 17 years ago after the death of her first child. His loss was the inspiration for her book, and she has dedicated it to his memory. In addition to From Ash to Ashes, she is also writing a nonfiction book titled Brown Girl's Guide, a collection of essays on womanhood and motherhood as seen through the eyes of a woman of color. And you can find more about Krishma on her new website krishma.tulyaurora.com also on instagram at krishma Writes and on twitter so welcome krishma to the podcast
1: thank you thank you josh for having me today
0: so i always like said like reading people's bios and getting to know them a little bit and this book that is just coming out from ash to ashes said so it's taken 17 years to really pull it together i'm really curious if you could explain sort of what the book's about and how you've processed some of your grief within it
1: so i started writing this book about almost 18 years ago 17 to 18 years ago when my first child my son passed away unexpectedly at the age of seven months old and i was a new mom and i was very young i was only 24 years old at the time it was the one of the most traumatic experiences that i had in my life and at that time i was not living in new york in the united states actually i'm married to uh, my husband who was born and raised in england and after his after my son's death we were living in england And I felt very isolated because I didn't know anyone there. I mean, I knew his family and I had a few friends, but my own family uh, was not there. So also, I didn't have any access to mental health care. Uh, I did once bring up the idea of talking to a therapist. And my idea was sort of cut down, like, you don't need a therapist. You're just sad. And that's very normal. And you'll be fine. It'll take time. And, you know, you'll just move on from this. And what I realized was that I wasn't moving on from it. And I didn't really know what to do. So I started I'd always been a creative writer just since I was a child. So what I started to do was I started to write a story about a family who has who experiences loss. Uh, And without telling you too much, in case anyone is interested in reading the book, without going without giving too many details, I found that it was a way for me to heal and to grieve because I was channeling my own grief and emotions into the story that I was imagining and writing. So in a way, it was sort of like a coping mechanism for my own brain. So that's how I began. And the reason why it took so long was because in the middle of all this, uh, when I began, I, I I became pregnant many months late, not too many months later, like a few months later with my uh, second son. And then it was busy. I, I was very busy. I went on to have, you know, four more children. I also went back to school. I did another master's in education. Uh, I took on a role as a teacher. I, I, I taught for 11 years. And in between, I would pick up this story and start writing again when the passion was flowing. And then I would put it down for years sometimes if I had a baby or if the, when the kids were younger. And then again, I would pick it up and work on it, put it down, pick it up and work on it. And that's why it took so long until I finally thought, okay, I need to finish this. That's why it took so long.
0: Well, I think it's just interesting to not rush a process. And your life took you on many different directions throughout that. And I'm guessing how your process and your grief influenced the way you wrote. So if you tried to write it all in the same year, it would have been a totally different book to what it is now. And so I'm kind of grateful that it took so long because there's probably so many new things that you have shifted within yourself to be able to write and put wisdom within the book. And so could you talk a little about what the, the premise of the book is?
1: Yes. So the premise of the book is about a um, an Indian family, um, their religion is Sikhism, a Sikh family who immigrate to the United States in the, ni- in the 1980s, the mid-1980s. And um, they have a lot of... T- difficulty adjusting to the new culture and to the new place they have a a range of children who are pretty much you could say the youngest being like five years old and the oldest being probably like 14 or something a teenager and you find that the ones who are the oldest they they suffer the most because they've all that they find it harder to acculturate they also uh, face a lot of discrimination the parents also find it difficult to assimilate. So within all this struggle, there's also this generation gap that forms between the children and the parents because the children you know, are, are changing to, with the society that they're living in and the parents are trying to keep them grounded back to their old roots. At the same time, in the middle of all of this that's happening, they lose a loved one. They lose one of the children and then they don't know how to cope with it because they don't believe they already have problems communicating with each other. And then they don't believe in seeing a therapist or bringing anyone from the outside in to help. And they all are coping with this loss in very different ways. So what you see is you see a lot of rift between the husband and the wife, because that was one area that I wanted to explore because I found from my own experience that your spouse may cope with loss, completely differently than how you cope with it. And oftentimes that's not the same way. And couples, it's very challenging for couples to deal with loss because being in a relationship in itself is work. So if you add another conflict, another huge trauma, it just uh, makes everything more difficult. So these children are dealing with it. The parents are dealing with it, but the end of the story, and I want to say this is it's actually very hopeful. And it's funny that you said that you're glad that it took me 17 years to write it because you're right. If I had written this entire novel within that first year or two of having lost my son, I think it would have been very bleak. Its message would have been very bleak. But because I think that I grew so much as a person throughout all these years, that at the end of the novel, there's great strength, perseverance and hope as the message. And, you know, it all transformed because I transformed as a person.
0: That's amazing to hear. I always love a good story with hope in it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, it right?
0: well, and also like seeing people with hope again. Like, so that was such a, and still is a very tragic loss to, you know, I've never had the death of a child, but with what I hear and what I see is just, you can't really explain that. And yeah. for you to have to go through that so at the age of 20 and your first child, I can't understand the enormity of that impact. And then with the limitations of support that were around at that time, how to sort of work through that. So could you talk about maybe I said, like you, you did mention that you your thought thinking about going to a therapist and people basically said not to. How did you really work through that, those emotions?
1: Right. I um to pray because I'm a spiritual person. But at that time, it, it was strange, but I sort of had shut myself down to that aspect of myself, which one would think would be the part that would give you a great amount of comfort. But I sort of, I guess in a way I was angry. I expected, you know, more from God, or maybe I was angry about what happened. But there did come a point where I sort of surrendered to the situation. I surrendered. I, I started to stop like thinking of myself as the victim of the incident that happened rather I started to think of myself as something that happened you know rather than something that happened to me because I found in fact how it switched was it was my mother was really uh, going through a great depression, of course. At the same time, it was her first grandchild, and you know, and I'm her youngest child, so it was just a lot for her. And I found myself consoling her at, at one point, and I realized by looking at her, and seeing her negativity towards everything, and her questioning of why did this happen to us, why did this happen to my daughter, why did this happen to me, and then I sort of, I was able to sort of reflect. And say, no, actually, I think we're going about this the wrong way. I think it's really something that happens and it happens to a lot of people and we're not alone. And what made me realize that was at the same time in the news, there was a tsunami that hit Thailand. There was a huge tsunami and it was all over the news. And there was reports of a seven month old baby, a seven month old baby boy whose house was completely demolished by a tsunami floated in the ocean in his crib for, I don't know, three days and survived, survived, didn't get eaten up by a shark, didn't die, didn't drown. Like I I went without food, like hunger, like milk, whatever, no diaper change, like three days. They found this baby. And eventually like every parent who had lost their child in Thailand at that point, was claiming that the baby was theirs. They want. They felt that that was their baby, but they actually found the real parents eventually, and they were reunited. And I thought to myself, wow, that's crazy miracle. What does that mean? What is this like, what is like life showing me? It's showing me that this was meant to happen. That if that child was the same exact age as my son could be saved in the most horrific, insane circumstances, then my child who passed away unexpectedly for no real reason just like that in his own home just through an accident somehow which we were all there it could have been avoided but like some I don't know how it all came together but that means he was meant to go there's nothing we could do to stop it there was nothing I can do to change it and it's not necessarily something that happened to me it's just something that happens because um I'm not the most important person and my son wasn't the most important son there were thousands of parents who love their children just as much and their children have perished in that tsunami. So I knew at that moment that it was time to stop being the, and playing the victim. It was, it was time to start surrendering to what is and continuing just knowing and just feeling the pain. That's how I started to heal rather than trying to avoid it or put blame on something else.
0: Wow, that's very interesting on how you landed there. You know, like with, and it's not something like someone just taught you, it's just like you had this experience that connected these dots to allow you to grieve in a different way, to give up some of the anger and to surrender to just what is and the moment that has happened and to honor your grief without... Suppressing it in different ways, being that victim. I think that's really interesting. And everyone has their own different pathways to go. And it's very interesting to hear yours because it has led to a road of being hopeful about the future. And, and that's for me, it's like, wow, like you, we can learn a lot from each other on how we navigate our own grief because you said, like everyone's grief is different. Yours was different. Yeah. Your husband's was different. And. Yeah we we can mom's all was your mom's yeah. was different and everyone's leading to the same place but they're all taking different paths that's why i think so interesting about grief is there's not just one right path or one right way of thinking but everyone has their own unique based on who they are and their culture on how they can get there um, while honoring their emotions and their feelings through it and so in your book you do talk about there's this cultural or spiritual conflict with some of the characters did that ever happen within your story at all
1: yes um in fact um i i remember um culturally like in my family no one was supportive like my husband and husband's family, no one was supportive of going outside to a therapist or a psychologist or someone to talk to because a lot of matters such as this, such as even loss is considered to be a private matter uh, within the family. So going anywhere who, you know, and talking about yourself and about your emotions to a stranger is looked down upon. It's considered just the wrong thing to do, you know, and, um, in fact, oftentimes I find that culturally a lot of emotions are sort of swept under the rug. They're, they're suppressed, they're repressed. And the idea is that you need to accept it and move on. And I always hated that word move on. And so does my character in the novel, Mira Singh. She is told um, that, you know, well, you're young and you'll move on. And, and what she... She gets very angry about that because she feels that she doesn't want to move on because to move on would mean to dishonor the memory of her loved one. It doesn't necessarily. So I make it very clear in the novel with my characters the same way that I feel is that we never move on from someone that we have loved and lost. What we do is we carry them with us in the rest of our journey. And I think a lot of people who have experienced loss would agree that they don't want to forget. They don't want to put away their pictures of their loved ones. They don't want to pretend that it didn't happen or that you know they didn't exist, but they want to honor the time, whatever time that someone has spent with someone that they've loved and lost. They want to honor that memory and honor that time. And that's, that's what I keep it very alive, that sentiment in the novel.
0: I like that. I think the words of choice too, like people do, I still hear that, that language of moving on. And I said, what you're, you're really referring to is true. A lot of people don't like those words and <laughs> yeah. like that statement, but like to yeah. be transformed and to be able to, I like to say, you don't get dragged by your grief as you move forward you start walking with it and so you're always walking with that person who has died and so it's not as as hard in the sense of you're being pulled it's like you've been transformed and like you surrender to the as you said the moments but you can walk with each other and walk with those yes. people in your everyday life as you move forward and so with the the death of your your child you never actually said his uh his name yet so who was it Oh yeah his,
1: his name is kabir his name was Kabir. Uh, the Maybe. book is dedicated to him. It's okay. uh, written right in the beginning. The book is dedicated to the immortal, okay. to my immortal son, Kabir. And the reason I write that, I, I make him immortal, is because he doesn't need to exist physically to be alive in spirit. So he's, yeah. you know, I feel like our, our, I believe our spirits are immortal. And, um, you know, we all have that eternal essence that we leave with someone else and, and they carry us forward.
0: I love that. And I want to ask, have how do your kids uh, see your your deceased son? Like do they have a bond? you can try to continue or, or raise awareness of that relationship or try to breed that relationship with them?
1: Yes, I, 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 I do. And my kids know about him. They know his name. They know how he died. They know his age. I used to, and I often what I do is on his birthday, I show my kids his videos, his pictures, you know, it's like a every year thing that, you know, you know, especially with the first child, you you take lots of videos and take lots of pictures. So there's just a lot of stuff like that. Um, I feel like it starts to diminish a little bit with each succeeding <laughs> child, which is terrible, but that's how it is. Um, but so we sort of celebrate his memory in that way and keep him alive within the family. I don't want them to, You know, there are people who don't talk about children who have died in families and a lot of children grow up in our culture, not knowing that they had siblings or that they heard like through passing, maybe an uncle or aunt told them one day that you had a brother or you had a sister who passed. And they don't really tend to know much, but I didn't want to do that. So I, you know, my kids know, even my little ones know.
0: What gives you the, I guess, the motivation or courage to do things differently? Because you're going against the grain in many ways. And so I'm just curious, where is that coming from?
1: So um, it's funny because it's like my religion and my culture are intertwined, but yet they're so different. Because in my religion and Sikhism, there's this fundamental understanding of like oneness and uh not just oneness in terms of like we as a humanity are one, that too, but also this oneness of spirit and you know we believe that everything in the universe, including our souls are infinite because there's no beginning and there's no end and everything on, in the universe is infinite and that, and therefore you see that reflected in nature, everything is cyclical. So in the same way I believe that when we are when we are born and then we die, the souls, doesn't just disappear like and, you know, disintegrate like the body, the soul continues in another life form, and and in different forms, maybe at different times, you know, I don't know all the details of that, but I'm not God. (laughs) But, uh, but that sort of always gave me spiritual strength in terms of, it's not the end, you know what I'm saying, it may be the end in this particular relationship in this particular life. But Love is something that is continuous. It doesn't end, you know, and I believe the same thing um, with the soul and just the unity of the universe. And that has always given me so much clarity in terms of um, how to live my life and with what perspective. Whereas the culture, the the Indian culture tends to be very, in a way, repressive, not only towards women, but also towards emotions there's a lot of because if you have to live in a certain so that's also in the book where the girls are not you know the boys and girls they're not the girls are not really allowed to date and they're not allowed to you know there's arranged marriage and there's you know all this uh, like so there's there's limitations and so the culture is limited and therefore emotions are limited in a way so i shun a lots of part of the culture but i take on the the spirit from the religion, you know, and then this is how I sort of balance the two. It's never easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it, it tends not to be, and that's why I think a lot of people just try to maintain the status quo. But you're really trying to engage in what your heart wants and to be guided by that in a different way. And it's leading you through this path where you're, you know, you're trying to be supportive and understanding of others within your culture, but at the same time, you're trying to honor yourself and what you need. And so that spiritual aspect of yourself is really giving you that that push. That's what I hear anyways. So that kind of motivation to do things a little differently based on knowing that you still love and with that, you still are going to have these emotions that need to be held and, and seen. You can't just yeah. repress them. So that's really beautiful to, to hear that you're able to do that because not everyone can, right? And then they can become bitter or, you know, just, just different people and not, not mm-hmm. transformed in a more positive way where there's hope being shown from their eyes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as they sort of move <laughs> forward with others. And so I'm really curious about just Sikhism in general. When it comes to the death of your son, were there any like rituals that are specific to that? Religion.
1: Yeah. So, um, when my son passed away, and when someone passes away, what we do is like we have certain prayers from our holy book, which are read, uh, and some of them I translate in the novel, and uh, just. I'll, I'll give you two sentences to give you an idea. It talks about how transient uh, and how temporary the human body is and how temporary life is. And basically, uh, because we cremate, we don't bury our dead. In the cremation, it talks about in the cremation fire, your um, your hair, which is is like straw, and it burns like straw, right? You know, or your body, the vessel, it, it, how it burns. And at the end of the day, your soul is then set free from the limitations of your body and your soul is free to be with one with the oneness of the universe which essentially is god and basically we believe the reason we cremate and i explain that um I have one of the friends ask the daughter, but why, how could you burn the body? You know, because, you know, we bury that. And she said, the reason they burn the body is because we believe that your soul, your spirit identifies with the body for so many years, right? For such a long time, you believe that you are, you know, I believe I'm Krishna. I believe I'm a woman. I believe I'm a mom. I believe I'm this. But essentially you're none of those things because once you die, all of those things leave you, right? You don't exist to be a person, even. So, when your body is dead, now the soul is hovering because the life, which is the part of aliveness out of you, is identifying with the body that's there. And unless you burn the body, then the soul can let go of it, let go of that attachment to the body, and then really be free. Whereas if you bury the body, spirits tend to linger. Because they believe that's still them laying there. So that's the reason why in a lot of Eastern cultures, Eastern religions, they cremate the body.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like that. Thank you for that teaching. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna take that with yeah. me as I move forward. That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. And so yeah, really... when I learned it, I was I was intrigued too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah, it's said so like uh christianity that a lot of times they, they bury or in western culture anyways they bury the yeah. body but yeah that's a really interesting way of thinking about it and to understanding sort of why you do it because that it's so it's so interesting just being in a culture you just think that this is just what you're supposed to do you don't actually yeah. question the why like why are we actually doing this like what's the meaning behind yeah. this one of the questions we do like to ask is about dreams and yeah. so i'm curious if you've had any dreams of your son since he passed or anyone else
1: Yes. So I've had um, I've had dreams about my son and I've actually not had those dreams in many years. But the years following his death, like um, you could say the first few years, I did have dreams and it was interesting, but it was really the same dream. It was the same dream that I had repeatedly. And the dream would be that I was in a house and someone said to me that Kabir is here. He's come And he's waiting in that room or he's in that closet or he's waiting in there. And I would feel such emotions where emotions I could not contain, like of happiness and of longing and wanting to see him because I was missing him. And so I would go run to that room and open the door in hopes of finding him and the room would be empty and he wouldn't be there. And then I would wake up from the dream in tears, feeling empty again, empty inside. And those that was my dream of him every time. It was strange that it was the same dream multiple times. The dream never changed. I never found him. I always hoped he was going to be there, but he never was. But I haven't had that dream in many years since I have experienced other loss and have had other dreams, but I don't know if you want to ask about that separately. yeah,
0: yeah, so wow, that's such a heartbreaking dream to have and have to wake up from over and over and over again, okay. but you you definitely sort of see that longing to see your son, right? like you yeah. definitely see that and it's probably something you're processing, and dreams are it can like depend on what culture you're from Western culture, dreams really can reflect our waking emotions and how mm-hmm. what we're trying to process. And you know it's it's sad that some people have to have those dreams and other people have these dreams where there is that longing, but they get a chance to see the person. Yes, you know. Right. And so you've never had a chance to actually see your son in a in a dream, then? Wow. Never.
1: Yeah, I've seen other people. I've seen deceased grandparents. Recently, I lost a very old friend of mine uh, who was also my neighbor growing up. He died suddenly in a. Uh, in a motorbike accident, and I actually found myself grieving and mourning for a long time. And I had, and I think it was because I had regret and guilt. You know, I, I, wasn't as good about keeping in touch as he was. I wasn't, what was my last reply? I had to check. And why didn't I ever really tell him that I loved him, but he knew I did. And there was a lot of that. And there's a lot of self doubt. And uh, it took me like more than a month of like not sleeping well and, and having dreams of him. And then finally there was one dream after weeks and weeks, he finally like, I, I tried to talk to him to say, um, not in the dream, but I tried to, like, when praying, say to him that I hope, you know, if you can hear me, if you're there, I hope, you know, that I always loved you and care about you and I hope, wish you are at peace, you know? And I mean, he died very young. He was only 41. And uh, so it was a great tragedy for his family, who I loved dearly. And then one night he came into my dream and he was 10 years younger like when we were a little bit younger and he was, he had that same mischievous smile he always had and I said, I said i saw him and i said you're here and i just i wanted to tell you that i love you you know that right and he said of course i know you love me and i love you and we hugged it was that embrace it was such a powerful dream and was so much comfort in it that I knew it was real. That literally his spirit had come to me to say, "It's okay. You don't need to be guilty uh, of anything." You know, we always picked up wherever we left off, kind of thing. And that was it. When I woke up after that morning, I was fine in a way. I was cured. I was cured from the dream because I knew I knew that those emotions that 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 was real.
0: Wow. like yeah. you're totally two different types of dreams that you have.
1: yeah completely different, right?
0: But what power that like I guess they both had power. One was more in the negative. This was more of yeah. just really helping with the healing process. But it's amazing that like one dream can just change everything. That's what happened with me too. It's just like the one dream can change everything. And you're like, what, what what was that? And like why yeah. did why did it take so long? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly that's what i was like we couldn't arrive a month earlier you know before i didn't sleep for a month <laughs> <I would do. laughs>
0: but i'm so i'm so happy to, and like i love the way you've ex- you've explained it just really to to capture the essence of how powerful and loving that was and just yeah. it said a short dream but it just meant the world too and you can still probably like a lot of people say they can go back to that dream still and feel what it feels like is that true to, with you too
1: Yes, I can totally remember the feeling of the embrace and the the love. See, that's why it felt so real. It was because you just felt this overwhelming like love, like there's like a glow of love. So like you knew. So when you woke up, you were a hundred percent sure that he had come in spirit to to give you that love. Like that, it didn't just like, it wasn't my imagination. You know what I mean? And I felt something and I always know that spirits in a way and messages, universal messages are there because when I got married, this is another off track dream. My grandmother who I loved dearly and grew up with as a child uh, had passed away, actually had been murdered when she was in India and I mean we weren't with her at the time but I remember feeling this great like an injustice had been done to her I mean she was an old woman and people had broken into her house and they ended up hurting her and then she died as a result and I remember what a terrible loss it was and how scary it was to imagine how she died and at the same time Years later, I was getting married and it was something about because I wasn't having an arranged marriage. I sort of met my husband on my own. And then we had some, you could say, uh, like some people were against us getting married. And so before we got married, like, I guess there were, must have been some sort of doubt in my mind. Like, am I doing the right thing? Should I, should I? And I had this dream where my deceased grandmother came to me. And in that dream, I was wearing a very light pink Indian wedding outfit with silver diamante crystals and in the dream. And my grandmother came to me and she gave me something and she gave me a blessing. She gave me her blessing and she said, you'll be fine. It was something about how everything will be fine. Like she reassured me. And then she left, but what's scary and eerie about this dream is, I didn't have my bridal outfit at that time. Months later, my mother and my sister went to India because I couldn't leave my job. I was working at the time, I couldn't get a break to go. They went and they did my shopping. Now, you have to understand, I got married 21 years ago, so there was no FaceTime and there was no like, I'll, I'll, I'll text you a picture. No, no. It was like, when we get back to our hotel and we'll pick up the phone and hopefully you'll still be awake and we'll speak and we'll tell you on the phone what your bridal outfit looks like, what your outfits look like, okay? When they brought that outfit back to New York and I saw it, I was freaked out because it was the outfit that was in my dream with my grandmother. I'm getting chills right now. Chills. Just retelling the dream. I'm telling you, these dreams—they don't come up. They don't. They don't. Are not just what you're feeling in the day or what you were thinking about in the day. Some dreams are real messages. You know?
0: Wow. So how do you explain that? I- <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, we just like, I don't know. It that's why one of the things I love about this topic, it makes it sit in the mystery of life. It you, I, how I, I, there's another guest that came on that talked about having this after her, her spouse died, having this dream where he gave her a ring and then all of a sudden she walked into the store and that same ring was there. And so she bought it and it's just like, how, like, how did like it was just very, these, these moments happen and you just like sit with what is and it helps you really to surrender to like we don't know (laughs) there's a lot we don't know but these dreams can sort of help provide us some answers but at the end of the day it can provide such great comfort in those moments and so wow like i'm so happy you had that dream to help you work with those those emotions and the opinions of others like life is so difficult Because the opinions of others are always very judgmental in what we should be doing. right? Like If they would just allow us to be who we need to be, it would be a different place, a different world. But we're always navigating the opinions of others. And I love how these dreams can really inform a direction and, and a comfort and a peace that we're making the right decision. I'm really curious. In the Sikh religion, do these dreams ever be are talked about? Are they frowned upon? I know some religions frown upon them and others don't. Like, Is there any kind of discussion about them at all?
1: Um, well, there's a, a verse that comes to mind uh, from the, on the holy book. And it's a way, it's sort of like an analogy. It's not talking about dreams per se. But what it says is uh, there's a line that talks about your life. It tells you that your life is like a dream. It's the king... The, the rich king who goes to sleep at night and dreams that he is a poor man, that he's a pauper, and where he has, you know, he's lost his home, his palace and his, you know, robes of clothing and his jewels and his money, and he's suffering in his dream. And you, when you're dreaming you feel suffering. Like if you've, you know, if you're hurt, you feel the pain in your dream. If you're afraid, if you're running away from something, you feel fear. It's all real. And so that's the verse. That's what the verse says. And then when he wakes up, he realizes it was a dream, but your actual life is only as real as a dream is because all the emotions you feel in a dream is, is analogous to all the emotions that you're going through in this life. And you think that it's so real and it's permanent and it's forever, but your life is only as temporary as a dream is, you know, it's not that one is more real than the other. So that's what you could say about dreams, you know, but in terms of cultural wise in Indian culture, a lot of people analyze dreams. Like my mother says, if you see a snake, it's a bad thing, that means it's a bad omen in a dream. If you, um, you know, if someone who's deceased comes back to you in a dream and takes something from you, then that's a bad omen. They should only give you something because if they give you something, that means you're, you're receiving a blessing. If they take something away from you, then it's not good. If they just come and talk to you or you see them, you feel their presence, that's okay, that's different. It's weird how they analyze
0: dreams. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow, I like that. Yeah. I'm always so, so curious because everyone has their own interpretations of this, of, uh-huh. of these types of dreams and always really interested to sort of see how culture and religion view them because there's yeah. just so many different ways people can understand them. Um, yeah. But wow, interesting, interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and so one of the last questions that we ask is if you could have a dream tonight of anyone who has died, what would okay. that dream look like to you?
1: Well, I think I'd like to have a dream about my son, Kabir, just because I've not seen him in so long. And I wish it was a dream where he was 18, turning 19 soon in May would be his birthday. And I'd like to see how has he grown up to look like? I I never got to see. That would be a great wish of mine to know how he's grown up. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's just truth, right? Like he- yeah. You're his mother, and you want to, to see those moments and yeah. how powerful that would be. And I've heard other mothers have had dreams like that where the deceased is shown at the age that they would be. So I really hope that you get that dream tonight. And if you do, yeah. please tell me. Like, uh, that would be really beautiful to hear that. But yeah, it's like, it, it's still, it's, it's always it's, it's hard. hard. It, it just comes out in different ways. Different questions just pull out yeah. the, the grief in different ways. And we just honor that. And I just thank you for being open and just free, like to be able to be yourself and to share some of these experiences that you've had some wisdom and also the emotion. I appreciate that so much.
1: Thank you. I thank you. I, I uh, really enjoyed talking with you and you know, I hope that whatever I've shared may help someone else who's listening.
0: And then as we wrap up, where can people find you again? If you, um, the book is being I'm on,
1: I'm on i'm on instagram my instagram is called krishma writes and uh i have a website um, you can pre-order my book it's on amazon
0: excellent so we'll get all that stuff out there hopefully people will check it out and check your, your new website out thank
1: you, <laughs> thank you.
0: and so yeah well, thank you again so much for being on the podcast
1: thank you thank you josh take care